Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about relationships and transition. I've been thinking about secrets and intimacy and one's ability to understand the experiences and perspectives of others when we are observing from the outside. I've been thinking about warfare, internal and external, and what it's like to emerge from the bombings. My guest today is author Lisa Evans. Lisa writes books for both children and adults, including Crooked Heart and Their Finest, both which were long-listed for the Orange Prize for Fiction. Her new book is V for Victory, and it's the topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us, all the way from London. Well, thank you for having <laughs> me. Yes, absolutely. Um, so your novel takes place in the last stages of what was a long and grueling war, uh, that seems like it won't ever actually end. That's sort of one common experience of um, the characters, the sense yeah. that it's not ending. Can you set the stage for our discussion just by sharing a bit about the story? Absolutely. I had written two books previously set at the beginning of the Second World War, both both in London or, or just outside it. And uh, that's the time of the Blitz when there were nightly bombings. And it's, it's an era that many people are familiar with, both from film and documentary and books. But I had a set of characters I wanted to follow, and I decided to set the next book, Viva Victory, right at the end of the war, about which I knew less. And um, as I researched and as I read, um, a picture emerged of an incredibly weary population, because at the end of the war, not only... Um, was London had London been very very badly bombed? Not only was there stringent rationing, not only was it the coldest winter in living memory with fuel shortages, but also after a period when there hadn't been too much bombing, um, Hitler's rockets started. So there were two different types of rockets. There were V ones, which were pilotless planes, which were launched from um, the European mainland, and which would, after a certain um, mileage the engines would cut out and they would dive and you could hear hear them coming hear the engine cut out and then they would crash or there were v, after that there were v2s and v2s were rockets and you couldn't hear them coming uh if you heard the explosion you were probably still alive and going to going to survive um they came out of nowhere they killed vast numbers of people and this was going on all the way from the summer of 44 right through to march of 45 it was a very weary population they knew that victory was coming but it seemed to be taking an awfully long time and i i I just want to talk a little bit more about the difference between the rockets and the experience um for the londoners with this shift because i think you might you know, think about it quickly or read it and think, oh, well, you could hear one rocket and you couldn't hear the other. So what? <laughs> um, but it's not so what? No, they, it was it was extraordinary. The first the first ones, the ones were known as they had many names, but doodle bugs or robot planes. And those would hear a sort of noise like a, like a motorbike, really, uh, in a distant lane. And you could hear it coming. And you knew that if it cut out directly overhead, about 12 seconds later, it would hit the ground with a huge explosion. And during the time uh, doodle bugs were coming over, uh, which was largely the summer of 44, um, 
it was described that the, the whole of London was listening. The whole of London was one huge ear listening out. But people described it as being like cats who listen with their whole bodies, listen with their fur almost. You were waiting, waiting, waiting. And you would hear that noise. And if it carried on over, you'd think, oh, thank God. And then you'd think, oh, but but then it's going to hit someone else. So there was there was fear and there was anticipation and there was guilt and there was anxiety but then the, the next rockets that took over, the, sorry, the next bombs that took over were called the V2s, and they were rockets. They looked like rockets. They looked like a child's drawing of a rocket. They were launched up. They went up into the stratosphere, and then they came straight down on London. You didn't hear them come at all. If you were directly underneath, you might feel some kind of change of pressure. But for most people, the experience of rockets was hearing a distant crack followed by a boom. And then maybe maybe feeling the shudder of the air, and they uh, they at first the government didn't say what they were, but everybody knew it was a new secret weapon. And at first they were known almost comically. My my mother knew them by this name as flying gas mains because the initial explanation from the government was they were gas explosions, and of course they weren't. They were they were actually rockets. Then was the uh, intention from the Germans just to cause as much damage as possible. Yes, I, th- I think there's, there's no doubt about it, and to go on doing that. and uh, Because what would happen, particularly, is as, as the um, Allied invasion moved into the continent, the launch sites would move back. So, you know, at first they were launched, from, uh, first the Zulubugs were launched from France, and then they were launched from Holland, and they could pull back and back and back, and, and, and the V1s could be launched from Germany. Um, sorry, the V2s, the rockets could be launched from Germany. Um, so it just, yes, it was a last dying attempt to, to disrupt and to hold back the Allied advance. And it was a, a very different experience from the Londoners. And if you knew or speak to Londoners, um, it was very different from the country. And I think people might not realize how many families and especially children, uh, families moved to the country or, or children were sent to the country or sent to schools outside of London. And it really was a completely different experience within the confines of the city. Yes, completely different. The, there was a vast evacuation of children right at the beginning of the war, an extraordinary um brilliantly organised um, movement of, of several million children who were taken out of London and put in areas which were considered more safe. Then the first year of the war was known as the phony war because nothing really seemed to be happening and a lot of those children drifted back to London. The parents took them back or the children said they wanted to go. Then the blitz started, which was the nightly bombing, and the children went out again and a lot of them stayed then for, for two, three, four years. And living in the country... You, if you were in, certainly away from a city, it was a completely different experience. Your experience of the war would be um, obviously, you know, you would have relatives in the forces. There was there was a great deal of rushing. There was a great deal of making me, making do and mending. So it was difficult to get new clothes, for instance. There were evacuee children, but in terms of direct conflict, no, you didn't you didn't experience that at all. You uh, and yet London looked large parts of London looked devastated and this was particularly shocking for soldiers coming back into London towards the end of the war who perhaps spent their time in in North Africa or even stationed in remote parts of the UK and they came back to London and they they sort of couldn't believe how people had been living 
and 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 what dangers that their families that they were supposed to be fighting to protect had been under. So often, they had lived um, under more danger than soldiers themselves. You uh, center the story of the book uh, of your novel around a uh, boarding house and the war wardens. How much did you know about the wardens prior to writing your novel? Was that something you you also had done quite a bit of research on for your other books, or was this an, a lot of new information? Yes, I I'd done some research for my other books. What when I was researching, and I I did vast amounts of research for my first book set during the Second World War, which is called Their Finest Hour and a Half, or Their Finest when it was made into a film. And um, amongst the things that I found most valuable were books that were published during the war, citing people's experience in the Blitz. Because And a lot of books were published during the war, quite surprisingly. And often books which were fairly critical of the government. It was quite surprising. But there were books published by... Um, uh, air raid wardens who had worked during the Blitz or fire uh, um, firemen. And those, for me, were particularly valuable because they were written directly after the experience. So I knew everything about them was pin-sharp and accurate. The, the vocabulary, what they ob- observed, what they'd seen, everything was was there. And one particular book, which I loved, was called Raiders Overhead, which I, I, I think it was reissued fairly recently. And it was uh, by a an air raid warden called Barbara Nixon, a very bright woman, a, a socialist. She had been um, an actress before the war. And she became uh, an air raid warden in an area of London just north of King's Cross, a very poor area, uh, which was smashed to bits during the Blitz. And her her account of it was fascinating. But also it gave a picture of um, a service which... Um, wasn't always dramatic. Obviously, they, they, you know, when there was actual blitz, they were, they were racing around. But a lot of what they did was administrative in a way. They knew who who was living in each house. They knew which families were there, who had gone, who had come. They could then inform the services who was likely to be buried there. They knew which sectors had had um, more people in them. They they knew which services to call, where to park. It's all a kind of organisational, non-glamorous role, and yet one that could be very dangerous in itself. Because, you know, if there was a raid, you were out there in it. And I I had a couple of warden characters in my first couple of books, um, one of whom's a, very much a baddie. But when it came to V uh, for Victory, I wanted to represent that. That um, They also serve who only stand and wait, pe- the people who do the hardest jobs, the non-glamorous jobs, and I wanted to represent that. And especially towards the end of the war, where a lot of them had been stood down, wardens, and they, were, they only had a skeleton staff by the time of the, the V1s and the V2 raids. So they were very, very stretched. And so I, I decided that, that to make a, one of my characters, who actually appears in an earlier book as a little girl, I decided to make her into a warden, a senior warden in a, um, an area of London, uh, quite a poor area of London, and she is the, the only woman at her warden station, and there is a, a V2 rocket attack, and she has to take charge. And it's quite a long section of the book. It's two, it's two chapters, and it, it, it's almost a sort of hour-by-hour account of what happens during a rocket attack. But I, I almost felt that it was sort of like a tribute to the, the unsung heroes. It's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful two chapters, and it is so beautifully written and, and really puts the reader in into those moments. 
I was wondering about the fact that it comes quite late in the book. Um, and was that something that was intentional in the sense that the warden is Winnie and that Winnie is sort of becoming throughout the novel and then maybe realizing um, what she is capable of and being able to maybe see herself um, from uh, others' eyes. I mean, throughout, she's she's treated with respect from the other wardens, and but it seems a turning point when she yes. is taking charge. Yes, it was more that I think I wanted to... to show her to the reader because we we have met winnie and she's a she's uh she, her the other part of her story is she's a twin and has a desperately glamorous twin sister who patronizes her she has a she she married for, for love um a teacher who then almost instantly went to war and was captured and becomes a prisoner of war so she hasn't seen him for five years and she's somebody who who is drifting in a way and, and is worried about what's going to happen to her after the war. And, and you see her in various different nights throughout the book. Um, I mean, perhaps you see her as somebody slightly put upon, somebody slightly anxious. And I wanted to present her um, as, as she would have been. Uh, so with all her skills, with everything she'd learned, to, 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 to show w- what somebody quite ordinary could do um in that kind of situation so i think it was more um in a way pulling the curtain away in which she'd been covered in the rest of the book and showing showing her what she could do i think throughout the book you pull the curtain away um on the uniqueness and especially challenging experience for so many women in, in during the war but especially in London and at this point Winnie at one point secretly hopes the war might just keep going she's made a wager and we learn that she she puts the end date later and there's yes. a sort of secret hope but shameful that maybe you know it will keep going um, what is it that she and, and some other of the women are faced with when looking at the transition and what and her best friend as well, what they may have to return to and what will be expected yes. of them? A life, a life without uh, power in a way, a, a life without excitement. And that does sound odd, but it's, it's true. And, but also resuming a life with men that they don't know very well quite often. Um, there were so many divorces after the war because people were having to settle down with, with you know, uh, partners that, whom they hadn't spent any time with for four or five years and who might have married hastily and knowing them very little. And and so for, for Winnie and her, her best friend, it, it's, it's a life that's potentially dull and a life that potentially has no no excitement on the horizon and for some people perhaps that's you know what they wanted they after the war they wanted to settle down they they wanted children but often that didn't turn out the way they they hoped it, you know it was so hard to settle down with people who had had a totally different experience and you know there were people who stayed in touch or people who could write eloquent letters but most of us don't, let's face it. And and to try to get to know somebody whose experience had been totally different after five years was very hard and must have been very frightening in that anticipation. You did not know who was that person who was going to be turning up on your doorstep after four or five, sometimes six years. A lot of the story and exchanges between the characters revolve around sharing 
or on the contrary, withholding confidences. And we see that with Winnie and her husband. Um, and that we can see that pulling them even further apart, aside from their very different experiences and not seeing one another, that not being honest and sort of protecting and withholding um, with secrets and and with their experience. And her husband is is so bored. So having such a different experience from Winnie, um, how does that impact? Yeah. Um, It's, well, it, as you say, it's a total lack of communication. Uh, in, in, in the book, Winnie's husband has been prisoner of war since 1940, and he is extremely bored, as many prisoners of war were. But also, if she mentions anything of her day-to-day life as warden, um, he gets extremely worried, of course, because there's nothing he can do. He feels impotent and um, and terrified that, you know, this woman he adored is, is facing danger when he can do nothing at all apart from sit in a prisoner of war camp and and write letters and he becomes obsessed with the idea of their life after war he becomes obsessed with where they're going to live what it's going to be like he discusses you know what the garden's going to be like and the decor and Winnie finds her own letters are just little bits of jolly gossip or, or, or discussion on rations and she's aware that her letters that his letters are extremely dull, but she comes to realise that her letters are dull as well. And they're basically lying to each other about what's actually going on. He never really tells her how awful it is in the camp, and she never really tells him what her true true um, work is like. So it's, it's a total miscommunication. And we meet them briefly at the end. Reportedly, I didn't want to tie up the story completely. Um, we meet them at the end, and they're being very careful with each other but there is a a glimmer of hope i think is, is all i can say really now you but can you see the know. path right you can you you, can you give the us the yeah. path that the, a possibility between them the doors are not closed um yes we also see the impact of keeping secrets between two of the main characters that are have been very close throughout the novel and then towards the end they each start holding some secrets with um noel and his aunt um yeah was that something you were wanting to explore that what happens with intimacy when uh, we aren't sharing and we aren't being honest? Yes, I, yes, I did because the, it's, it's difficult explaining the relationship between, between <laughs> them because it's a complicated one. It's um, fabulous. Ways, but well, I introduced those two characters in a, in a book called Crooked Heart. I mean, you can read V for Victory as a standalone novel, but it's actually part of Loose Trilogy. And uh, I first came up with those characters in, in Crooked Heart. And Noel is an ex- extremely clever and eccentric child who's been brought up by his godmother, who's a former suffragette. And during the course of Crooked Heart, he is evacuated and goes into a house basically full of grifters. Um, Vera Sedge, who is uh, trying desperately to hold a household together with a, a mute mother and a wastrel son. And she is disorganized, not terribly keen on, on doing things legally, and um, just about scraping along. And she discovers and, 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 and she discovers in Noel a sort of partner in crime and they become quite a successful scamming pair. They they, they collect for for fake charities in the suburbs of London. 
by uh, V for Victory, so they've had to keep endless secrets anyway. By V for Victory, they're respectable. They're living in London. V is running a boarding house. But they both have to keep quite a lot of secrets. V is not who she says she is. Noel is not who he says she is. But also Noel has no real idea of his own origin either. There's a lot of secrets. He doesn't know who his parents are. She doesn't know who his parents are. And um, so between them, they have to keep a lot of secrets. And this extends during the book to their own relationship, which has always been... um, warm and motherly in quite a quite an unusual way um and by that i mean she she isn't his mother but she has she has achieved a kind of motherliness that, that you would have thought was alien to her and by the middle of the book they are not really talking to each other and this is something of course that can happen with any adolescent but in this case, it, it, there's a peculiar danger to it because they can be found out. So it, 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 there's a combination of, of things between normal to emotional uh, drawing apart of a, a child and, and their, their parent adolescence, but also there's a legal element to it. There's a beautiful... It's too much away. I know, I know. It's always the challenge. I think we're doing an excellent job, though. Um, There's a a beautiful scene between V and Mr. Jepson, who's one of the boarders at the boarding house, where they're in a cafe. They're sitting back to back. He's not looking at her, but he's so generously and graciously holding space for her to open and share um, were you were you happy with how that scene came out? I I did like that scene. I don't I don't tend to write romance at all. I don't even read very much romance. But that doesn't mean I don't like romantic aspects to a plot. And in and Crooked Heart has no romance in it at all. And Viva Victory has very little. But V, who has always had to hold herself apart, partly. Um, through through fear of relationships and partly through this this semi legal way she lives, um, discovers somebody who will allow her to talk and very very gradually over the course of 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 two scenes they they sit back to back. Jepson is a, a journalist and and um, they're in a cafe and he says he's done this before. He, if they sit back to back at separate tables, they can actually talk sort of along the wall and it doesn't look as if they're together. And because she doesn't have to look at him, she finds she can talk more freely than she would otherwise. And they really, they draw each other out. And yes, I was really, I was really pleased that I love writing dialogue and it was lovely to be able to give the dialogue that space. The conversation lasts a couple of hours. So I was able to, to, extrude it really it it it, it comes either side of another chapter so i'm able to move it on while it's not on the page and then then i then they discover a new way of talking to each other and i was really pleased with it yeah i got you to the end of something you think oh yes i've done them i've done them just yeah absolutely and it's so interesting for you that it's framed in romance which which obviously there's obviously there's that element but for me it was the larger frame was humanity there was this like the essence of humanity um, with that uh, well, thank you. Yes, I, I, I wanted to write. He's a, he's a very gentle character, Jepson. He's a, he's a man in from a failed marriage and who was mutilated in the First World War. So he's only got one ear and he's very conscious of that and has had a d- disastrous first marriage. So he's a very 
damaged man who has maintained a, a normal uh, working life, but his own personal life has been a disaster. And and he discovers someone he can talk to, too. And yes, I, I did like that. And, and Jepson's name I particularly like. Jep, it's funny, I, I take surnames uh, that, that I particularly like. And we had family friends called the Jepsons with the most marvellous dad. Um, oh. And so I, I sort of, it's my tribute to yeah, Professor Jepson, our, our family friends. Yeah. Well, and it's so wonderful to then learn as well. And I think we we might assume that people in the boarding house, and especially through the through the book, there's so many conversations between they're eating their meals together, but they don't know much about one another. Um, and that we learn from Mr. Jepson that this boarding house has provided him with the happiest experiences of his life, and it feels like a home. Um, and I think we're reminded as to what are the elements that create home for someone, because we might think this is the least place where, where someone might find a home. Yes, I, I, I think, I mean, I wanted to write a boarding house book. It's very much um, uh, a, a, a trope in English fiction, something that turns up quite regularly. The boarding house fiction is something that was written a lot about in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and I've read a lot of it. And it's, it's very interesting to write because these are totally disparate people who really only come together over meals. And often they, there's a tyrannical, you know, a woman who runs it. And but in this case, because Vera um, has got no notion of how a boarding house should be run, it's actually, and because it's not her house, it's a house she sort of borrowed. She's not proprietorial about the house, and therefore it feels far more like a home than a normal boarding house would. And because she doesn't know how to how to run it, and because her son. Oh, he's not her son, because Noel does all the cooking. Um, it's a very, very unusual place. And people there can stay around the table and talk for far longer than they would perhaps in most boarding houses. And I really relish that opportunity to, to, to bring that group of characters together. I love that. I, I wish there'd be more scenes around the table. But, he you know, absolutely, he is her son. Too. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> Yes, he is emotionally her son. Yes, yeah. he, by rights, he's her son. Yeah, he right, is, yeah. by all rights. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Maddie, uh, whose home it was prior, and she's Noel's godmother. And at one point, Noel recalls a dream and the feeling he's left with when he wakes. And he says, what remained with him was that sense of being born along, of seeing the world from a height at a gallop, the horizon wide and blue. And although Maddie's not... Um, alive during during this book and we don't meet her in the physical realm um she's such a powerful character in the plot again and again again and and in so many of the characters lives she was such an important figure um and i hadn't realized this was a trilogy so i was going to ask if you know more about her uh, that you don't share in the story but obviously you do do, and so do your readers i do know everything about that yes what happened was i i wrote Weasley, I mean, for a trilogy, I wrote the middle book first. I wrote this book called Crooked Heart, which starts this young boy, Noel, being brought up by an ex-suffragette, a former suffragette in a big house on Hampstead Heath, which is an area of London. And during and during the course of the prologue, this, this elderly woman uh, becomes demented and and then dies and he has to be evacuated. So that's the whole beginning of Crooked Heart. And we meet Matty, um, but her huge personality infuses that whole book just as it infuses um, V for Victory. So when I finished Crooked Heart, um, 
I wanted to do a sequel, but people kept on saying to me, but what about Matty? What about Matty? So I actually wrote, um, after Crooked Aunt, I wrote a book called Old Baggage, which is also published in the States. And Old Baggage is the story of Matty Simpkin, this suffragette. But it's not her story as a suffragette. It's her story as a former suffragette. It's set in the 1920s. It's what do you do next after you change the world? She's been a militant suffragette. She comes out the other end after after the First World War, driving ambulances. What do you do next with all that energy, all that chutzpah, and all that ability? And Matty has money as well, which means that she doesn't have to worry about work. And she's she's this huge huge personality. And in Old Baggage, she runs a girls' group on the heath called the Amazons. And some of the, and one of the girls is Winnie, who ends up in. Uh, v for victory. So Matty's story is in old baggage, but Matty's influence runs through all three of the books. And Maddie's best friend as well, right? Was was one and of Matty's them. best friend, the the flea. She's known as Flory Lee, um, and uh, and Flory Lee is uh, Matty's companion, who is actually deeply in love with Matty, and uh, Matty loves her, but not in the same way that Flory loves Matty. And that that's part of the story. Um, uh, Old Baggage is a story about it's about suffragism and feminism, but it's also about class and about British class particularly. And this this girls group she runs has both working class and upper class girls in it, and it's about the mix, the very potent mixture that is formed when that happens. So yes, yeah, so Matty Matty sprang into being fully formed, and then I went back to you know write more about her. There seems to be running throughout this exploration between the 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 wonderful exuberant power of Maddie and her value of being firm and reliance and bold and lofty and unafraid um, with the many of the characters, the main characters, each striving throughout and struggling to approach life with this aplomb, right? They, they all want yes. this sense of being bold and lofty and unafraid. And, and yet also running along that same current is especially for V, as you mentioned earlier, this person who has never relied on anyone other than herself. Um, and yes. she almost has to let go of that self-reliance yes. to, to grow. Yes, that's absolutely right. But V V has been, yes, V has been scrabbling for money her whole life and has never been able to trust anyone else at all. And uh, she's just about got by. But V has had very, very few pleasures in life. You find, you find along the way, she's, she, for instance, she's never seen the sea. And there's oh, a scene I couldn't in, believe um, that. I'm like, she's it's yeah. right, it's right there in the bar. Yes, that's right. And, and yet not that uncommon. She lived in St. Albans, which is just north of London. She'd never had any money at all. Yeah. No, she'd never been. She'd had one day trip to the countryside uh, in, in East Anglia once, but she'd never been to sea. And that was a, a lovely thing to write. Um, she, she's taken to the sea by a GI who becomes her friend. And um, she's taken to Brighton Beach, which at, during wartime looked hideous. I mean, it was all covered in barbed wire and things. But for her, it's, it's you know, it's a seminal experience. It's incredible. She sees it the first time and she hasn't realised what it's like to be next to the sea, how it, how it, how you can taste it on your lips from, you know, 100 yards away, how it, how it fills the horizon. And, of course, in a world without, you know, easy access to films or photographs, it would be an extraordinary thing. And I love putting my characters in a position where I really have to think, what would this be like? What would this be like for somebody who'd never seen the sea in their 40s? And I really enjoy that kind of thing. I remember there's a, there's a bit in another book where 
um, one of my characters walks up Parliament Hill, which is a high area of London, Hampstead Heath, and looks at at this at London, which has been bombed, and 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 Parliament Hill's very near me. And I remember standing up there and watching, trying to think, what would it have been like? Mm. What would it have looked like? What would he have felt? And I love doing that. I love having to to invent a whole a whole feeling. And I think that's so wonderful for the reader, not only to be able to experience that through V's eyes, that experience of, of wonder and her first time at the sea, but the realization that, yes, there are many people, as you say, who might live close to the sea and have never seen it. And we can extrapolate from that for so many other things that people, mm-hmm. we might assume or or not understand about people of, of their limited experience and, and what it's like. That's right. I mean, I don't cover this, but it's very likely V had never been to theatre and V had never had a restaurant meal. She would never had any, any of those things, yeah. Stuff that, that seems easy and we take for mm-hmm. granted now. For that's, why cinema, that's why cinema was such a huge thing, because, because poor people could go to the cinema and have this extraordinary rich experience for, for very little money. So you so adeptly explore throughout the book how individuals deal with extended hardship. Um, externally and externally. And at one point, Noel asks another character whether his father was a bad person. And the answer is, I think he was someone who expected life to be easy and had no resources when it turned out to be hard. It's as my aunt says, you can't eat charm. Um, That was a poignant moment for all sorts of reasons. Yes, yes. I mean, mean, without giving too much away, no, no. Uh, meets his father during the book and it's it's not what he or anyone would expect the experience is is very odd the the book is a lot about and, and both books really are about unlikely families um noel in a, ends up almost with two or possibly three mothers um it, there, there are families in this book who are not related by blood and yet are are incredibly close and the whole that runs through the the whole trilogy and um, it's like the the, the suffragettes um form friendships which which lasted for life and um in fact when i was uh, researching old baggage uh, i came across a wonderful reference book and the woman who wrote it a reference book on suffragism had, had looked at suffragettes wills uh, to try and find more information and she had discovered that a very large proportion of suffragettes had left their money to other suffragettes so, you know, they, the friendships had never gone. The, you know, the circle was unbroken. And this idea of, of, of non-blood-related families I find in, incredibly interesting. And I think possibly it was all started. I, I, I wrote Crooked Heart. I got the idea for Crooked Heart about a, a year after I became an adoptive mother of um, school-aged children. So the idea of small people moving across country and going to live with strangers was was very much in my mind and I think that probably prompted the, the you know the idea in the first place and that then extended so it's, it's it's about families it's about it's about love and closeness but but not necessarily between those who are related and I'm thinking about shared experience and it's something I I hadn't thought about before until now that I 
knew it was so difficult. My mom was British and I knew it was so, she, she told stories of her going off to boarding school when she was six and the, the train being oh. bombed and losing her yeah. trunk. Um, and then my aunt's home was bombed in London. Um, and I always knew that it was so difficult for her to come to America, to be away from um, all of her cousins and her family and, and felt so lost in America in so many ways. And I never had thought about the element of leaving all of the other people who she had developed these close relationships with that weren't family um, based on yes. the shared experience of the war. Yes, I mean there were there were so many losses in that way during the war. It was um, yes, I mean and, and, and children were expected to cope, and in many ways did. But I think there were there were certainly lifelong effects for some of them, <laughs> just being wrenched away from from every every everyone and everything they knew. My own mum, incidentally, who was always blood-minded, refused to go as a child. She simply refused to be evacuated, mm-hmm. wouldn't go, and and she stayed in London throughout the war. But she said she was never afraid. It's funny, isn't it? It is. You you explore throughout um, the book the idea of, of transformation, but also losing ourselves. And it seems that Noel works hard throughout, um, not only to hold on to himself, but to, to desperate for others to hold on to themselves. Um, and not not drift away or, or shift too much. And um. Yes, the the at the beginning of uh, Crooked Heart, when Matty dies and he is evacuated, really what what it is 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 a study of grief. Really, I mean, Noel is completely shut down in the, the whole of the first half of Crooked Heart. You know, V when she first meets him thinks thinks in her <laughs> untactful way that he's a simpleton because he's not really talking, he's not saying anything, he's just observing. He's completely shut down. He's lost all his emotional ties, and um, he's not—he's not the person he—he, he, you know, he's lost all the kind of interesting facets of his character, and um, yeah. So, so I often find myself writing about what I didn't realise I was writing about. If you see what I mean, I mean, if you told me that you know, crooked art was a study of grief, I would, I'd have been astonished. But it is in a way you can look back at these things, you know, after you've written them and think, oh, oh, right, okay. I get that. And so it's a, it's about loss, and, and therefore from then on, he, he, he fiercely holds on to onto the relationships that he manages to, to, to get, yeah. Well, if that's so, then v, I think V for Victory is a study of life, <laughs> how, 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 we, how we grab onto that, even in the hardest times. And I think, and it's, I'm so, in a way so glad I hadn't read the other two, which I will now, but before I read this one, because <laughs> I see Noel as the most... Alive and deep, and just most fantastic uh, character, and and I think others oh, do too, oh, because you say that women love Noel, women of all ages, yeah. and and yes. we see why. I mean, his his passions for cooking and his um, his subtlety of sense. And he listens. He listens. Uh, yeah, yeah. He listens. yeah. And he sees. And this all makes him sound like a complete paragon, but he's he's not. He's a very eccentric. He's a very eccentric young man in many ways. But you can you can see how he's built in the other books. If you see what I mean, he 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 turns is, up is at the he, end of old baggage. Is he know? eccentric or is he interested and interesting? Because it yes. he doesn't yes, seem right. It's, 
right? He seems he seems more like the the goal than the oddity. Yes, he does. I suppose he doesn't. He never try. He never pretends. Mm. No, he is what he is. He he he's um, he's eccentric. In, I suppose in that he doesn't try to fit in with others. Yeah. Uh, he 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 pursues his own line, which and he has he's he's I think somebody described him as morally amoral. I mean, uh, Noel believes in good and bad, but he doesn't necessarily believe in legal and illegal, and that's that's his background that's created that. First of all, Matty, who was imprisoned seven, seven times as a suffragette, and then living with V, who really had many entanglements with the law, and what. what and Noel is very fierce on right and wrong, but that isn't necessarily the same as legal and illegal. Well, no, and I think, too, he has a generosity there with a clarity that he's very clear on his values and what he deems as right and wrong. And there's not gray area yes. there. It's black and white. And yet he allows room and space for others to... Um, understand their circumstances and where their lines are and that they may be different in some regard yes yes i think i think his upbringing has made him uh, give space to others uh, he doesn't expect people to to run along straight lines the whole the whole time he expects oddities he expects swerves and offshoots that he accepts them in a way that many people don't. There's a scene also towards the end of the book where Noel's walking down the street and um, he's noticing and commenting on the variety of the passerbys. There's mourners, a vicar, upper crust, Wimborne types, working men with black armbands on their jackets and a Greek daughter and, and her ancient father walking arm in arm. Why was that important for you to put into the story at that point it's um that's a scene in a, a graveyard and there is recently it's been a very very fierce winter and a lot of people haven't been buried and there is a mass burial and what it reflects is is london and Londoners. that's that's who was affected by the war anyone who lived in london and that meant anyone of any age anyone of any class anyone you know either sex it, it, that was that was what was important to me that it, yes it reflected this this city the city i live in now which has always been um a hybrid there has always been a huge mix of people um and and that's who war affects everybody and was there do you think during the war especially towards the end of it um, or more during, and maybe it changed afterwards, a um, a common support and a common understanding among the diverse population in London? I, it, it, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, certainly during, during the Blitz, when there was, that's early in the war, um, in 1940-41, when there was bombing nearly every night in London, there was a common experience which was very, very bonding. Before the war started, the, the government was very worried that, or um, was advised by people that people might go mad from bombing. That they might. They were talking about opening a chain of psychiatric clinics to treat people affected by it. And what they hadn't predicted at all, in fact, 
was that didn't happen at all. That the, the mere fact that there was common experience that you could go out in the street and talk to people or at the shelter about what had happened um, meant that people were not isolated. And, and people who perhaps had lived isolated lives before the war weren't living it during the war because so much of the experience was shared. And that was totally unexpected. And I think that common experience was bonding in a way. But on the other hand, um, n- nothing is ever black and white. And all, there was just as much veniality and crime and, and, and lies told and, and uh, crimes committed during the war, really. As, as there was before or after, different sorts of crimes. Um, but because the human nature doesn't change, um, and, and that comes across in the book, but what doesn't, also doesn't change is people's longing for the ordinary. People, and you can see that anywhere in the world, you know, look at Syria, look at, you know, people always want to have a nice supper on the table, to be able to celebrate a child's birthday, to have a wedding, to 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 have a happy time, to, to have normality. That's what people want. They want normality, and and that that citywide longing for normality, I think, was what brought people together. And that's what I see as, as the so-called blitz spirit. People want things to be ordinary, and they will do anything to to, to achieve that. To to get normal food on the table, to have a night out at the cinema to, to to celebrate an engagement. I think that's so powerful in the book to shift our perception to the fact that what had become normal during the war, when the war ends, it's a huge um, shift and demanding of transitions in all sorts of way. And we see that with Winnie when she, and it's so funny we're talking about Winnie so much because if you had said, oh, is Winnie the main character? You probably would not think so, right? <laughs> but it's like she yeah. is in so many ways, at least for our discussion, in that she goes and visits her family out in um, the country and they have no idea um, what <laughs> she's going through, right? And and she feels, you know, she rushes sort of back to the city and feels so disconnected when she's there and is so much yeah. more connected with these other wardens who in, you know, normal life, quote unquote, she would never probably have in, interacted with or engaged with at all. And yet there is where the true bonds are that are comforting and, and supportive for her. Absolutely. People, people outside London, um, people were often quite bored with people in London going on about bomb stories and things you know they, they they sympathy only goes so far and and when when a bad experience goes on and on and on people start tuning out and yes the the the, the social mixture of the wardens and the social mixture of things like you know fire fire stations and ambulance stations was extraordinary and you really did get a mix that would then disintegrate after or it would go and and it's funny i'm really i'm researching um post-war at the moment and you had extraordinary experience where you would get, uh, say, an officer coming home who actually, in in civilian life, you know, delivered groceries for the for the local store. You know, there there were there were people who had been off to rank for the whole war who were going back to sort of working class lives. It was absolutely extraordinary. I think too. We we don't we well. don't. I think we don't often pay attention much to 
the transition time, right? And it's not mm-hmm. the liminal space where nothing's happening. It's not that in between. It's the transition time. And I, I've been thinking of it so much lately because I think that's where often we need so much support. And, um, yeah. and, and this is so much, uh, not comparable. And I almost hate to say because I can imagine people <laughs> sending mean comments, but that we are in a huge, the world is in a huge transition point now coming out of the pandemic. And yeah. I think a common experience will be um, what are the transitions out like and what are people transitioning to um, and that we're going to need need a lot of support. Yes, and and also the the things that you predict are going to happen never do. We won't know for a couple of years things that really will be difficult or things that really will be important or the things that will last or the things that disappear. You never know at the time, though. What's predicted almost never happens. That's that's one thing I have learned from researching. All the things you might think had happened wouldn't, didn't, haven't. And that's the V for Victory is filled with all those kinds of surprises <laughs> as to what did happen, it didn't happen, and what we thought uh, might happen. Uh, really, really is a wonderful read. Uh, I've been speaking with Lisa Thanks. Evans, V for Victory, and um, also author of The Crooked Heart and, and a number of other wonderful books that we've talked a little bit about during our conversation. And Lisa, I just want to say um, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, my son was just asking me the other day, well, Mom, I was thinking about, like, your mom was British. What that must have been like. You know, you had a British person <laughs> talking to you all the time and telling you what was what. And um, I very much miss that that British voice talking to me and, and oh. telling me what's what. So... Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thanks, Lisa. I'll be, I'll, oh, and I'm right. going to go and grab those other books. Oh, I will do. Yes. Yeah, I yeah. Absolutely well. Read Crooked Heart first okay. and then Old Package, okay. I think. Perfect. Yeah. So exciting. Okay. Thanks okay. ever so Okay. Have a wonderful evening. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.